0: we hired 3,000 designers. We initially didn't hire very many researchers, and then we really turned that on. And now that's my major role is to lead the researchers across the company. And I'm really pushing hard on really seeing that if you only did design, if you only did development, you can probably have about a 10% chance of being successful. That's actually what most of the evidence shows today. If you actually inform that design and that product development with evidence, making it evidence-based, which is really what I argue that UX research is all about, then you have a heck of a lot higher success rate. And And it's also the case that I'd coined two other terms that I'm really fond of. So one of them is pseudo design. So pseudo design, just like pseudo medicine and, and pseudo science is basically medicine and science without any evidence, right? You just make it up. I argue that design without research is actually pseudo design.
1: Greetings from an icy cold Dublin, folks, and as always, a very warm welcome to this is HCD. And we welcome everyone to the show, and I'm delighted to have you with us for the next 30 or 40 minutes. My name is Jerry Scullion, and I'm a designer, I'm an educator, and the host of this is HCD, based in the wonderful city of Dublin, Ireland. Now, our goal here is to have conversations that inspire, inspire you, the practitioner, or the people interested in human-centered design, and we really want to help move the dial forward for organisations. To become more human-centered in their approach to solving complex business and ultimately societal problems, too, I caught up with Carl Vrandeberg. Carl is currently IBM Global Vice President of Client Insights and Research, and responsible for leading the company's global team of researchers and the insights they provide to product, services, and executive teams. Let me tell you a little bit about Carl. Okay, so Carl joined IBM in 1988 after having done graduate studies, research, and teaching at the University of Toronto and he introduced user-centered design at IBM in 1993 and assumed a company-wide role in 1995, leading IBM's community of designers, leading the development of design methods, languages and technologies, and leading the design of the commercialization of IBM Watson, something I used in the past, fantastic API. In 2013, Carl helped found a new IBM design program together with the General Manager of Design at the time, Phil Gilbert, and IBM fellow, Charlie Hill. Carl personally introduced the new design program which included enterprise design thinking to IBM product development laboratories worldwide and introduced a tailored version of it to the IBM consulting services and technology services organizations worldwide from 2014 through to 2016. This is really impressive. He next focused on the development and activation of enterprise design thinking for client-facing professionals worldwide and rolled that into IBM's top client accounts from 2017 to 2018. And he also conducted workshops with the C-suite and senior executives teams of hundreds of industry-leading companies worldwide, as well as startups, scale-ups, and public organizations. In this conversation, we chat about an awful lot of that stuff that I've just covered off there, such as where design needs to go in the future to be more effective. We talk about design coaching versus agile coaching, design education, cover off some of the key insights from the work that Carl and Don Norman have done working towards the project that they created about three or four years ago called The Future of Design Education. Carl is totally awesome, okay? And I know you're going to love this conversation, so hopefully you enjoy it. If you like what we're doing at This Is HCD, as always, folks, please help us out by leaving a review wherever you listen to the podcast. It only takes a couple of minutes, but it really helps, basically, other people find the podcast. Or you can go one better, folks, and become a patron. You can get an ad-free stream of the podcast for as little as one euro sixty-six per month of twenty euros per year, okay, and also get a shout out as a thanks. There are other plans there on the website at this eight and literally all the money goes towards editing, hosting, and maintaining our website, which is now a repository for human centered design goodness with over two hundred and thirty episodes. Anyway, I've rambled on enough. Let's jump into this episode. Carl, delighted to welcome you to this is 8 City on the podcast. Um maybe for our listeners, maybe tell us a little bit about where you're from and what you do.
0: Sure, Jerry, and thanks so much for inviting me. I look forward to having this conversation. Absolutely. So, I originated in the Netherlands, um, and yeah. my parents actually came to uh, North America to Toronto, Canada. That's where I'm still uh, based now. And my role uh, at present is, is Vice President of Global Client Insights and Research at IBM.
1: What What era are you most proud of in in your IBM career today?
0: really interesting question Jerry so and by the way I was only intending to stay at IBM for a year this was not the career I was <laughs> intending so for anybody that's listening that's like unsure about what they're doing um, yeah. I've just had been incredibly fortunate this is actually answering your question I've been able to reinvent myself every time I've been headhunted yeah. a lot and and each time the IBM company has supported my desire to do something different. And so Mm -hmm. I was originally hired to transform the company because at Mm -hmm. the time Mm -hmm. IBM was looking to break up into smaller uh, companies. And the part that I was in, Mm -hmm. in Canada, was going to be its own independent software company. And they said, man, we got to really up our focus on design and research. So that's what Mm -hmm. I took on. And then when I did that work, it then led to Um, the top of software uh, group saying, oh Mm. my God, we got to do this as well. And then the CEO of the whole company said, we got to do this as well. This was the user-centered design sort of uh, phase. I think I'm very proud of that period. We really uh, sort of upped things. But one of the things we didn't do was drive a lot of hiring of designers and researchers. And I really Mm. attribute that to a guy that came in about 10 years ago, Phil Gilbert. Uh, He was a serial entrepreneur. And... Mm he came in and I would use the word audacious in terms of the way that he yeah. approaches things. And he would say things like, I would say, well, we need about 200 more, uh, designers. And so, I, did I hear 2000? Uh, and we actually just go down the path of it. And it was evidence-based, but, but that was yeah. a really, uh, exciting time as well. So I think the the user center design days were, were, were really interesting. Um, I like the hardware days when we had the ThinkPad. Uh, We did a lot of work on that. We took the ThinkPad from eighth in customer satisfaction to number one in customer satisfaction, and then we sold the company uh, to Lenovo. But yeah, there's been lots of exciting times. I
1: I heard Phil's name mentioned uh, when I interviewed Doug Powell a number of years ago, um, and he mentioned a similar story to you, like championing design. and. um, it's good that those people along the way, and, and I know I know Doug's no longer at IBM, but he was a fantastic guest on the podcast. I want to take you back to 1988, okay? Because mm-hmm. you know it's in my era as well. Who were the challengers to IBM in 1988? There was Wang Computers, I think it was one, wasn't there?
0: Yeah, I think that. Well, yeah, back then uh, you actually had you know green screen mainframe. You know, interfaces mm-hmm. was, was really it. And, and a color display was really, really fancy. <laughs> I like. And so, yeah. uh, and, and, and I harken back to, you know, when I was in undergraduate and graduate school and was doing any computer work, um, it was typically in the early days done with, you know, the, the, the UI was basically the punch card. Uh, and and a, mm. a punch card machine which you know sounds like it's thousands of years ago <clears throat> but it's not actually yeah. that that long because yeah. the industry we're in just you know evolves you know so squ- so quickly so I think in the early days and, and actually that the work that I did during my PhD program actually I, I t- did a mm. side gig um, because I was doing res- I was doing research on information uh, uh, processing, looking at af- affective yeah. and cognitive processing of information, and I advertised for a um, an RA uh, r- research assistant. And all I had was male uh, applicants. And I said, this is weird. Like 60% of the university is, is, is women. Uh, why do I only have men? So I dug into, it, it turned out it was doing work with a computer at the time. And so he nice. said, okay, look, let's look into this. And I looked at content analysis of advertising. Yes, it was biased. We looked at the way that that boys and girls in elementary school were interacting with computers. And there was like a physical moving, you know, girls off of the computer with, with what the boys were doing. Um, then looked at the UIs and the UIs were awful back then. They were only negative. They only would tell, tell you when you had, you know, when you did something wrong and there was an error message, yeah. a sound and a, and, a, and a notification. So I did a project where we looked at, okay, how can we change that? How can we actually change the the, the design of the interface? And mm-hmm. I looked at self-report. Uh, uh, measures I looked at gal- galvanic skin response heart rate and mm. it had an amazing result that the work that I did on the UI ended up basically um, eliminating the anxiety yeah. that people that had uh, had ex- um, negative reactions to computers at the time yeah. so that's kind of what the frame was back then you know
1: absolutely it, it's crazy because when I think back to that year and I, I wasn't working in that era um, I just would assume way back then in in the late eighties, that design and research was still relatively within the interface levels and to have those conversations at the policy level or at the different Zoom levels, and uh, being able to zoom out and look at the, the anthropology of of kind of the reasoning of why things were the way they were, yeah. it sounds like IBM was quite progressive in how they accepted research even at that stage. Is that fair yeah. to say?
0: No, it yeah. is, and, and in an actual fact, we sort of invented some of the methods actually yeah. that, that we, we used back then. So things like, you know, if you look at it, the earliest phase was being enamored with scientific research. So everything was mm-hmm. doing usability studies and and uh, doing time a task. All that stuff still done today, but yeah. back then it was like the only thing that was done. It was end of the cycle development cycle testing. <clears throat> Doing all the statistics on it, which are still relevant, but there was just too much of a focus only on doing that academic sort of a, a mm. approach to it. And then we started to move left in the product development cycle. And I brought out mm. uh, user-centered design <clears throat> based on a book uh, in 1989 by Don Norman and team. Yeah, um, that was you know uh, user system user-centered uh, design, and I brought that around to IBM and. Really stood stood back as well and said we need to design the entire user experience and actually create a role that had responsibility for that. Um, and we did, you know, early interviews and uh, we did task analyses and and the like. Um, so it it really predated current design practices. Uh, but yeah. during that phase, I would say from eighty eight to like middle ninety five ish is around the time yeah. when. We really broadened the aperture.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So at that stage, like for, for people listening who are in their 20s and 30s, they've got a glut of information at their fingertips that even when I got into the industry in the mid-2000s, we didn't have. Like It was mm-hmm. like I'd go into my library and I'd try and find and ask for these books and you know, the bookshops couldn't get them and didn't have websites. At that stage, um, I know yourself and Don Norman were – we're probably leading the way. This is pre UX and this is pre HCI probably even at that point as well. So um who other people or who other people? What other people um were, were writing about this at that stage of of the journey? Can you remember?
0: Yeah. Well I think well, Don, first of all, was, was a major influence. I yeah. mean, he, he coined he coined HCI. He actually created mm-hmm. uh, that that, that term. sort of discipline, you know, in computer science departments. And I think that he also coined uh, the user experience, that term uh, and the like. Yeah. So he really was sort of the yeah. father of that kind of stuff, which at the time, um, he influenced a lot of my you... work. Say again?
1: Yeah. Bill Mulgridge.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think all of all of those guys back then. But I, I think the ones that that really informed um, my bent has always been on making sure that we do research and design. And oh. I think that, um, and that's only now becoming more, uh, you know, in vogue, if you will. You know, if if you think about in the last sort of 15 years, there's been incredible ascendancy of design. Everybody's been, in IBM, we hired 3,000 designers. Um we and we initially didn't uh, hire very many researchers, and then we really, uh, you know, turned that on. And now that's my major role is to lead the researchers across the company, and I'm really pushing hard on really seeing that. Uh, if you only did design, if you only did development, you can probably have about a 10 percent chance of being successful. That's actually what most of the evidence shows today. If you okay. actually inform that design and that product development with evidence, making it Mm evidence-based, which is really what uh, I argue that UX research is all about, then you have a heck of a lot higher uh, success rate. And And it's also the case that uh, I coined two other terms that I'm really fond of. uh, And one of of them is pseudo-design. So pseudo-design, just like pseudo-medicine and and pseudo-science is basically medicine and science without any evidence, right? You just make it up. I argue that design without research is actually pseudo- Uh, design. And I think we shouldn't be doing
1: that. 100%. So we we both agree, and I think everyone is probably nodding their head as well. There's very few people who are cynics when it comes to the power of research and power of good research and quality research (coughs) that listen to this podcast. Um, How do we get to that point where um, research is a lot more um, available to businesses? And what's holding businesses back, do you feel? Is it a skills-based um, shortage, or is it an appetite or a knowledge based shortage from from the organization perspective?
0: I think all of the above, actually, Jerry. <laughs> and I think so. I'll go through each of them. One one of them is skills based, in the sense that education itself for yeah. um, UX researchers, um, and you know, uh, Don Norman, fact that I mentioned earlier, myself founded this Future of Design Education initiative right. that we've been running for the last three years, and. That's had a, had a focus on uh, research education as well. And the challenge with UX research uh, information uh, uh, education is that there are very few schools that specifically train somebody in doing UX research th- sort of thoroughly. Um, they're typically in iSchools or information schools. They get degrees oh. in information. And while I applaud that those schools exist, I think that we need to even have way more uh, education programs for that. And so what, what do we end up doing instead? We hire people from adjacent disciplines, so psychology, yeah. ethnography, anthropology. And the problem there is then you got the foundations of research, but you still don't have the UX research methods particularly either. So, so part of it is yeah. that we don't have the, the foundation. Compare that to a visual designer. You just go to any design school and you can hire a visual designer. So that's one, one aspect. The foundation is missing or, or not as strong as it could be. And the other is the bias that there's okay. a, we just need to design it or, you know, the favorite agile kind of approach of saying, you know, just uh, fail fast. You know, and often, and say, well, you don't have to though. You could actually do some research and actually understand what you're doing before you actually go and build something or design something. So, I think there's also a a lack of um, executive management understanding of the importance of of research, Mm -hmm. and I think that's something that we need to address. And that's something at IBM, by the way, we've got a a new course that we're 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 taking all of our executive team through, uh, called client driven leadership, that. Mm. teaches deeply this is the value of doing a proper uh, UX research and how it should be informing. and, and there's there's often a bias to Jerry that or most people think that when you say UX research, you think about usability testing or you know evaluative <laughs> research, which is fine. It's got its yeah. place. You can you can, you know, modify the design you know of, of a product, <clears throat> let's say, or development of it. But if that's all you ever do, you're not gonna really change the world. You wanna yeah. be working on generative research where you're gonna get those unmet needs for the enhancements to a product or even better, any, an entirely different product. And and the other thing that my team's been working a lot on now is even go-to-market research. You can have the greatest product in the world, but if you don't design the experience yeah. of discovering it, learning about it, uh, trying it, and then buying it, you're also not gonna be successful. Yeah. You
1: know? Absolutely. So. We know that there's schools out there that, is, that are teaching research, okay? Um, but in order for us to be really successful, we need to go the other way as well and look at the existing people who are out there in the workforce at the moment and make them aware of the power of research. Mm-hmm. So is your philosophy, does it extend to upskilling existing employees who are in adjacent fields that could be in marketing into the fields of user experience research? And if so, how do you go about it?
0: Yeah, and that's generally referred to as the democratization of research. And I think that that is something that has its Mm -hmm. value. Uh, And I think, but it also has its dangers uh, because somebody just thinks, oh, I know how to do this now. I can just go do it. And so I generally guide teams to say that um, is it great to have designers doing some of the research work or even product managers doing it? Yeah, but under the guidance of somebody that really knows uh, what they're talking about, a really deeply skilled leader. In UX uh, research, so yeah, I, I think there's a place for it, um, and and because many people also are out there, like product managers are out there talking to clients. Well, they should be using more effective methods for doing those uh, uh, conversations, those inter- interviews as well, because you're going to end up with biased results. You know, if mm. they just come back without having had any kind of appropriate, rigorous method for in doing those interviews. Yeah.
1: So what does a good researcher look like then in your eyes um, so so people can self-identify?
0: Yeah, really good question. I, I, my sense is that there's a number of people that can actually li- uh, lift up to the level that I'm thinking of, but uh, the kind of people that I'm thinking of, um, somebody that has a, a PhD, for example, in uh, out of one of the, those schools, those high schools, for example, okay. um, because what they have is not only the research methods but they also have this understanding that it isn't only just academic research. I mean, it, it has to be practical. It needs to be yeah. um, lightweight enough and fast enough um, and focused enough um, to be effective in a business context. So balancing rigor with um, understanding of the business, now we need to, to, to move, um, is I think an incredibly important skill. And then the other one is really getting to understand the domain area that you're in. Uh, there's so do, some domain areas that are pretty easy to understand. Other ones, the ones that that my researchers at IBM are working on, when you're working at enterprise kind of software uh, and hardware, that's tougher. Uh, and so, to really be effective, um, you need to understand that technology area as well. And then the third thing is that you need to understand how to work in an overall system in a in a yeah. network of other professionals and and my favorite thing Jerry is that when you when people graduate from uh, from university at whatever level uh, and say that, yeah. say they're graduating from business they think they're the center of the universe when they get into a product team because they're they understand the market they're they and then you have the you know the computer science graduate and well they code the thing you know they're the most important right <laughs> designers yeah. a lot of the time from the top design schools come in and say, well, they're creating the experience. They're the most central one uh, to this overall operation. In actual fact, as you know, you need all three of them. And if they don't and more, you know, but unless they really can understand even the language of each other, you know, a lot of the time there's biases in in the way that those disciplines, you know, bring Mm -hmm. their skills to a project. So getting rid of the biases and actually understanding the other discipline and what they can contribute and that stuff just doesn't happen in universities. Yeah. You, you, you stay it, in your lane, you know?
1: Absolutely. You don't have that cross-functional kind of learning, that's that seedling within university where, where you're working across disciplines. One of the things that you mentioned there um, a few minutes ago was the pitfalls of, you know, upskilling people who are not going to end up being world-class researchers, okay? Mm-hmm. You talk about, the the importance of those three groups of people being able to work alongside each other is one of the methods helping those other people who aren't going to be long-term researchers learn about the value of research by doing research courses. Um, is that one of the approaches that you'd feel works?
0: Yeah, I think I think that's part of it, and then you have to do yeah. some on on the job training as well, and 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 probably um, uh, shadowing of of expert. Uh, And I think that even entry-level researchers need to go do mentor, be mentored by more experienced researchers. I mean, all you really have to do is sit in with a really expert researcher that's doing a structured interview, for example. You know, a junior-level person is going to be like, "Well, here's the question I'm going to ask, and I'm going to ask this one next," and like, right? It's like doing podcast interviews, for example. If you if if, you probably have the kind of topics that you want to go through, but a really expert. Uh, a podcaster like you are, Jerry, you you go with the flow. You go with what the person d- said most recently, and then you know sort of take it it's from enough. from there, rather than rigorously going through through sort of a, a set of questions that you are going through. But you still want to cover certain topic areas, and you also want mm. to provide appropriate support for and encouragement for the person that you're you're you know interviewing. Same thing with with research. So I think that there's a th- there's a certain amount of this that you can learn. Uh, in, with mm. Like book learning or, or video learning. Yeah. And then the other one is actually doing it experientially.
1: I completely mm-hmm. agree. One of the things that I see in businesses at the moment, though, is the, the agile manifesto when it was introduced. They took to it like a duck to water. And um, mm-hmm. most teams will have an agile coach within you know, several scrums or whatever it is. And one of the the things that I believe in the next 10 years I'd love to see is design coaches and research coaches to really help scale and provide the rigor for those teams to scale. Why Mm -hmm. is it, do you think, that Agile have been able to do this quite nicely, whereas it seems like the design industry is still lagging behind and businesses are afraid to hire external coaches?
0: Actually, I think that they're, I'm not sure that I agree in the sense that when when you think about um, design thinking done right and design yeah. thinking has gotten a bad name in many organizations largely due to the fact that most organizations do it wrong. My estimate is about 80 to 90% of all design thinking is done wrong meaning that they don't do what we call observe, they don't actually do the research first and a lot of the time they don't do, do any building or making of anything they're just Probably doing like the, the workshopping, right? They're fl- reflecting um, I th- so I think if if but if you do Design thinking, right? And our at IBM we call it enterprise design thinking. We educated like virtually everybody in the company in, in using these methods, mm. and it truly was transformational. It, it was it was more transformational than agile was in the sense that right. I could talk to any executive and ask them, in our nomenclature, you know, what's a hill? What are the three hills for your project? Those are the you know who's Rises. going to be able to do what with what what yeah. wow experience they're going to have. Um, or who your sponsor users were, all the terminology, they knew what that that was. So I think we have had that, but it clashed some of the time with Agile. And, and Agile, mm-hmm. uh, at least as done early on, it was sort of... Um, the first stage was largely starting to code. Uh, when and then later on, they actually ended up uh, creating a, a sprint zero, which was a planning sprint, and that's where a lot of the enterprise design thinking yeah. work, the actual user research work, uh, would happen. So the marrying of those two um, approaches is mm-hmm. nirvana. It really is. And so, yeah. and yeah. early on when we we made sure that we had an agile coach and a design coach, or, or a design okay. thinking coach working together. Uh, and if you're, you know, any of the planning that you're doing now, it's not just looking at, okay, well, you know, what kind of coding are we going to be doing in the next uh, sprint? It included having to take time for doing the user research work, for example, and doing the, uh, the design mock-ups and the like. Cause a lot of the time, you know, pure agile just, you know, discounts the user and discounts yeah. design a lot of the time. And so, but marrying the two together, I think is the ideal way of actually pr- proceeding.
1: Agile seems to be driven by time and efficiency and going faster and failing faster mm-hmm. in many of the businesses that I've coached, whereas the design coaches are, are like the antithesis of that. Sometimes they want to be able to challenge the time, challenge the efficiencies and say, OK, we need to slow down here. But they're, they're so uh, sort of attracted by this this speed the need for speed, <laughs> to quote, to quote mm-hmm. Top Gun. I wasn't imagining I was going to quote Top Gun in this episode, but the need <laughs> for speed um, seems to be what's what's kind of a resistance points for, for design adoption for many organizations. Um, how do you think, like, in, I know this is a in three bullet points, can you answer why mm-hmm. you think that is? But why do you feel that this is still a problem that we're facing coming into 2023. Like it's, you know, the, the we're 15, 20 years in. UX is quite mature in many organizations, but yet we're still getting trumped in those conversations.
0: Well, I think it, it depends on what company. So I, I think, mm. you know, while while IBM's not perfect, uh, I really think that we've moved the needle on it. And I think that there's just different purposes, like you said, but you don't need to be moving slowly necessarily. So uh, for Mm -hmm. example, the research work that you do, it needn't be part of the actual sprint schedule. You you can do, like there's certain uh, fundamental foundational uh, UX research work that should be done on its own schedule. So we say, okay, look, these are all the unmet needs and oh, we might just, so that needn't even be, in the overall, you know, sprint uh, sort of schedule. But other things, when you uh, when you actually um, schedule the design, research and development work equally, and that's really yeah. the challenge. And I think the, the problem is back to what I was saying earlier about the biases of different disciplines, right? So a lot of the the agile work is assuming that everything's all, all about development and coding. Yeah. So, well, no, if that's your bias, you're not gonna have a great result. If on the other hand, you only did, like I said before, you had the bias, the design is the center of everything or, or research is, you're still not going to get it. And I think that the, the challenge is trying to get people that fundamentally are even wired differently. Like designers mm-hmm. and coders often are very different people, right? Um, and and like anything else in society, <laughs> um, how do you get people that are very different one from one another to work one uh, to, uh, together? Yeah, we've got that in spades all over the world right now, right? And so yeah. I think it's a human, the human condition, somewhat that there is a challenge of trying to get people that are very different to work very closely together, and that not one of those, in this case, disciplines is um, the most powerful, and therefore it's driving, you know, the the uh, the approaches that we use to, to to create products, for example.
1: Okay, there's there's a whole host of areas I could get down in this conversation, now, and I'm trying to I'm trying to keep a, a pretty linear path in some ways. You mentioned there way back there about the the work that yourself and Don Norman have been doing around the future of design education um, research. As you're seeing, is is one of the, the key pieces that have come out of that work. What tell us a little bit more around the the output or the outcome of the three years of the future design education? Um, w- were there other things that went alongside the research need?
0: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and, and there's way 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 more than just the research uh, work. Yeah. Okay, it, we basically identified. Um, Well, we started off with Don and I creating a a steering committee of experts. Half of them were going to be in in industry or practice, as we called it, the other ones in academia. That in in itself is interesting (laughs) to have people working Mm -hmm. that closely uh, together because a lot of the time that doesn't happen. And then we um, asked for volunteers and we got some 700 people volunteered to help with this project. (laughs) And then we created um, working groups on particular themes. So we had a working group on sustainability. We had a group, uh, uh, a working group on design and service uh, uh, design. Uh, and um, all of these different work groups, um, again, we tried to make each of them half being practice, half being uh, uh, industry. I mean, uh, half being uh, practice, half being uh, academia. And mm-hmm. they then, you know, worked and workshopped and, and were really looking at kind of what, the future of design education—what what it should really look like—and then mm-hmm. and, and the the challenge we had—we um, were talking about this a little bit prior to uh, recording that the uh, project actually started right around the time, almost exactly the time at uh, time that the pandemic started. And so, our first face to face meeting was actually cancelled uh, because it was right at the Sorry. beginning of the pandemic. And I think that had yeah. some impact uh, in terms of us really working and having all those groups work well with one another they all worked inside sure. their own work group um and there were a few of us meredith davis who's amazing she's now the um the person that's pulling together all this stuff for publication um and i think what what, what so what we did was we, we had I, I think a, a total of uh, seven um uh different working groups and they are all now Um, writing their recommendations in the form of a journal article for a special issue of the um, Seiji journal. And so that ought to be coming out in, uh, I think, maybe the first or second quarter of next year. Uh, And Don and I also just wrote a final kind of summary, big picture view of where the field is going, where education is going and that sort of thing as well.
1: Okay. Are you okay to talk to us a little bit more around where you think the industry is going and where the future of design education is going? Because I know there's definitely some uh, people from SCAD have had SCAD on recently as well, and we were talking a little Mm -hmm. bit more around this as well. So I'd I'd love to get your thoughts on where where you think things are going.
0: Yeah, from the education side, I think it's interesting that we have um, disruptors in education, Mm -hmm. that a lot of the... Traditional schools aren't seeing as a disruption in design, and that is the boot camps. And so, yeah, boot camps, all the like, place. Say again?
1: Yeah. Like General Assembly.
0: Yes, exactly. Exactly. And they're non degree programs, basically, basically or, or alternate mm-hmm. education. And, you know, some of them are. I think inappropriately advertising themselves as you can either take a four, a four year degree or you can, you know, be with us for a couple of months and you get the same thing, which, you know, clearly that isn't the case. But yeah. it's also the case that so we've hired a bunch of people from uh, General Assembly, actually. Um, but yeah. the most of most effective, all of them, because a lot of the time they're not as uh, proficient in the craft side of design mm. uh, or research. But they typically have a, a degree or two uh, in a another discipline and typically have done yeah. work uh, yeah. as well so they come to you know when we hire them they come with a whole package of all kinds of things that the, an undergraduate uh, just straight out of you know uh, a design school you know doesn't doesn't have but but so d- do those programs teach you everything you need to know well no you can't do it quite in that amount of time but I think there's some characteristics of what those programs do that the other the university programs and the design schools really should take to heart which is mm-hmm. the sort of direct relevance uh, of of working on sort of real uh, problems and and of course the instructors there are typically adjunct uh, uh, professors mm-hmm. and and instructors that are doing day-to-day you know work today in in an industry um, but they are also uh, really flexible in terms of their curriculum so that yeah. each time they teach a course, they're they're going to you know modify it, but they don't have it, right? you know major you know curriculum committees to have to you know get approval from yeah. to make a change in a in a curriculum uh, every five years, whether you need it or not, sort of thing. You know, I'm being a little unfair, but I, yeah. I think there there's just a real sense of of flexibility and making things relevant that I think is is appropriate. You know, there, I think that universities have a huge opportunity to actually get rid of, and Don and I talk about that in our uh, piece, get rid of this hard line between disciplines uh, in the different schools in a university. If you actually, I I always argue that as a minimum, uh, every university should have a program like a capstone uh, course where um, you have students from business, design, engineering, whatever Mm -hmm. other uh, uh, disciplines may be relevant, um, working together, you know, getting rid of those biases, all the things I said earlier yeah. and working on real problems. A lot of the time in design schools, you know, students get to do, you know, a capstone type project, but it's whatever they want to choose to do. And it might be, you know, improving, uh, the, the, the gardening in the backyard or something. It could be anything at all. Right. But, and yeah. then they come to a company like ours and it's like, oh my God, these are like really hard problems to solve. Well, you should have also gotten that in, in in university. So where I see it going is, well, I don't see that going that where I think it should go is actually, Mm -hmm. uh, to do the very thing that, that companies need to do. And that is that every discipline needs to, and as we talked about earlier, needs to work really effectively together. Um, and while they may be in different, you know, units, like I, I have all the, the researchers in mind, but they can't just only work in my unit. They have to be working, you know, every single day, and they do with all the mm. other disciplines. Same thing for the, you know, disciplines and, and the the faculties basically in a university. I think they need to be encouraging way more of that. I, I always argue that it's it's surprising that students often only have encountered somebody from another discipline, you know, at a at a university party, you know, and mm-hmm. they, they in their education they they may not have gotten that at all. I think that's critical to address. Absolutely.
1: W- one of the other podcasts that I run on This Is Hate City is getting started in design.
0: Mm-hmm. and
1: we I seem to have encountered an awful lot of students over the last decade that have a bumpy exit out of academia and mm-hmm. this sort of transition into full-time employment is quite difficult um, and there mm-hmm. seems to be this transitionary period that is quite volatile and quite traumatizing for an awful lot of people when they're trying to find that job and one of the recent guests that I had recently just said that they were trying to learn as many skills as possible in the hope that somebody would just take a chance on them. Hmm. Where do you see the role of academia extending to, to aid the, the kind of the start of a career in design? Because it seems when you look at other industries like accounting, there's mm-hmm. a there's an intake in the big four and they take these people in and they, they get started, They get these opportunities. Mm-hmm. We don't have that in design, and it's we, we we run the risk of educating these people brilliantly, but we don't have industry there to really welcome them with open arms. And if we do, they tend to be mistreated.
0: Yeah, another great question, Jerry. And I think that I think it's a shared responsibility, quite frankly, yeah. between industry and education. Um, when we started our design program reboot from ten years ago, we determined that uh, the people that we were hiring. Uh, didn't have the right skills. And so we actually created a, a boot camp of our own it's a three-month boot camp wow. and I was quoted in the press as calling that the missing semester of design school and of university that, that's how I yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I now teach by the way as well I'm an industry professor yeah. but that the early discussions were as a result of saying you know universities weren't up to snuff yet so we we did and we hired some uh, people from other schools uh, SCAD included uh, in yeah, terms yeah. of the to teach that program. But yeah. that was way too much uh, you know, three, three months to have to invest, um, more of that needs to be done in the university. No, I, I think that there could well be, and I've seen some really good examples of this where, where it's a shared responsibility that, um, where even when, when somebody's coming to, to do like an internship, um, that it isn't like you're entirely now in, 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 a uh, in a company doing your your internship, yeah. that, that there may be educational opportunities still, where where, where it's mm-hmm. where it's a leader in in the business and also the, a leader in in the university getting together and actually reflecting on what people have learned and that sort of thing. I think it's also the case that that doing more of that shared sort of education also gives students the opportunity to realize whether they really want to do this or not, you know, as opposed to mm-hmm. now they graduated. Now they got to like, to, it's a point that you were making. Now they got to find mm-hmm. somewhere to, to land. If they yeah. have a really interesting set of diverse experiences in terms of, of internships, and I don't mean just a really quick internship. I mean, is, uh, something where you could a really spend some ser- some serious time and really going mm-hmm. in depth. I think that would solve it for both the company would understand better uh, where the, where the students at and the student could also have a better idea of what the company is all about or what this, even this, this business is all about. I mean, we have had some people recently, somebody just reached out to me on LinkedIn and said that uh, he was in my class uh, in 2017 and he said, you know what? I just was so thrilled uh, to learn uh, about design that he switched from, it was one of these multidisciplinary I did a, a a pan university course like anybody from any discipline could come in nice. and into my class and uh, he was like he switched now from from finance to 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 design yeah. but you could do that if if design isn't your thing you could also switch as well but I think right now we just hang out with only designers in design school only you know uh, uh, yeah. developers and computer science <clears throat> and we don't give students enough of an opportunity to traverse you know uh different disciplines as well
1: carl i know we're coming towards the end of this episode and i like for one I'm, i can't wait to get my hands on that that report okay is there i know you mentioned it's going to be in uh shazy magazine i think or the journal mm-hmm. um it's going to be published online
0: yeah and you can also go to uh the future of of uh, uh, designeducation uh, org is the um, yeah. uh, is the website Fu- future of designeducation dot org. Uh, you can also I'll go to my to own that, yeah. uh, my own website at carlvadenberg.com, dot uh, com, and yeah. I'll, I'll update there as well. But we're we haven't updated the website um, the future of design education one much recently because we've been focused mm. on this publication. But we also intend yeah. to. Actually, publish it I know there on the and
1: website, though it's, it's black and white. I remember seeing it when it was launched. Yes, yeah. I was, that's I was right. watching it, like you know. Um, and lastly, I know there's probably listeners who listen to your own podcast, Life Habits. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us a little bit about where that's at. And I know you mentioned there at the start you're going to start podcasting again.
0: Yeah, I uh actually started it um when I was doing a lot of mentoring at work, uh, and mm-hmm. thought, okay, well some of the time I'm telling the same stories (laughs) and it's like, well, why don't I record the things that I I say more frequently and then I can customize what it is that I'm doing in terms of a, a mentoring relationship with a particular person. So I, I created it inside the company, and then somebody said, "Why don't you go put this thing?" At the time, it's, it's like twelve years ago. Why, why don't you yeah. put it on iTunes? And iTunes was just starting with podcasts. I said, "Okay, well, yeah. we'll put it there," and it, it quickly climbed to number one in in uh, self help. I thought, "Okay, this is kind of fun," and so it it's was. Cool. So it's basically anything that is related to kind of optimizing yourself uh, in terms of you know broadly. Nice. Um, it, it's 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 a uh, I've got everything, topics from, you know, effect effective public speaking, uh, dealing with difficult people, um, how to inject, uh, design, and research methods in improving your own life. Um, wow, a, a variety of of topics, you know, like that. And so, and I haven't done an episode uh, the last little while, but there's been a whole lot of interest in me doing <laughs> another yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. So, I think over the uh, over the holidays I'm going to be uh, starting my uh, episodes Very there again. Good. And if anybody has any suggestions, reach out and uh, yeah, definitely. And I- I've listened it. over
1: the years as well, um, and I know you, you're you're big into veganism as well. Do you want to give a yes. shout out to your other? I know you've got a website. I, I found it my notes somewhere. Um, I, I want to vegan or I can vegan. Tell us what the yeah is. actually
0: yeah. I, <laughs> uh, i could never go vegan.com is one and i could go vegan it's the same website so both <laughs> your urls take you to the same site uh, but i'm actually so that's my own personal site i, I would also yeah, suggest yeah. That i'm i'm the uh the vice president of the board of directors for a vegto which is basically uh for toronto that's where i'm based um okay. a a vegan organization there and that's that's a pretty cool website you know as well okay, which is well, okay. veg. Dot, veg.ca
1: Okay, excellent. I'll put a link to both of those, um, cool. both perspectives of, of veganism on, in the show notes for this, as well as your Life Habits podcast as well, because it's it's an excellent resource. But look, Carl, I always end my episodes with thanking the, the guests for their time and their energy and their openness and their honesty for, for giving me the, the time to have this conversation. I know everyone listening will be really appreciative of your time. So, so thank you so much from the bottom of my heart.
0: And Jerry, thank you. And uh, being a fellow podcaster, I appreciate somebody that can do a really good interview and you are a star. So thank you, Jerry.
1: <laughs> thank you so much. That's so nice coming for you. Thank you. And there you go, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode. And if you enjoyed it and want to listen to more, why not visit thisishatecd.com where you can learn more about what we're up to and also explore our courses whilst you're there. Thanks again for listening.